is going to be the Palm Sunday reading. I'm going to read Matthew's version in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through 17. And Matthew writes, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. And the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now Jesus entered the temple area and drove at all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting to him in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus, and have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. We thank you for your precious word. Help us, Lord, to not simply be readers and teachers of your word, but doers of your word. I pray, Lord, that we would seek you, and seeking you we would know you, and knowing you we would love you. And loving you, we would be compelled to obey what you say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a story that, it's an old story for me. And I've told you here before, but I thought it was so relevant for Palm Sunday. And it's many, many, probably 20 years ago, I was at City Mission. And I was making my way into the men's shelter where the chapel originally was. And I was getting ready to open the door. I was going to turn the lights on and um, kind of get things started for service. And when I opened the door, just as I was opening the door, it was dark. And as I opened the door, I heard, "Woo!" Now, that'll surprise you when you think you're going into an empty room. And, and I turned the lights on, and there was a, a man named James who was living at the mission. He was sitting in the front row, kind of in the dark, reading his Bible. And he saw me. He goes, oh, Mike. He goes, Mike. Look at this. Look what this says. And he pointed to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He read it to me. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And, and it hit me in that moment. Of, How come I don't make that noise when I read that? Right? What's wrong with me when I'm reading the scriptures? There should be a whole lot of whoos. Right? Because this, this is an incredible. Thank you, Pastor Phil. Right? He's probably the one guy that does make that noise. Right, Bonita? Right? Because this is amazing stuff. And it's important for us 
as followers of Jesus, especially as we begin this holy week, to make sure that we are marveling at the events, that we have appropriate conviction and contrition and confession, that we are energized and compelled to go forth and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I was struck by Gary's prayer. He said that our hearts would burn hot. I, I hope this week as we're reading these, these stories, these real accounts, that our hearts are, are burning hot. There, there's a poem I love by the Polish, excuse me, by the Irish poet W.B. Yeats. And it says this, it says, Educated heads, forgetful of their sins, old, learned, respectable, bald heads, Edit and annotate the lines that young men tossing on their beds rhymed out in love's despairing. And, and what is Yates saying? He goes, oh, these darn professors, they're so sophisticated that they're taking these poems and they're trying to edit and annotate and pick them apart. But these are love poems. And they were written by young men who were tossing on their beds in the despair of love, right? And and we want to make sure that we don't get overly analytical analytical when we read these things. I remember being in ninth grade at Shalma High School. and It was my first reading of Shakespeare. And and the teacher was Mr. Pep. And and we got to read Romeo and Juliet. And wow, it came up. He made it come alive. It was so exciting. It was intrigue. It was sword fights. It was romance. It was betrayal and courage. And it so stirred our hearts that we would go out in the hall and we would reenact the, the sword fights. Right? And, and I gotta tell you, we were not smart kids. I mean, we were really dumb. But, but we couldn't help it. And to this day, I can remember after Mercutio was struck by Tybalt's sword, uh, as Romeo was standing there, and Romeo says, Courage, man, the hurt cannot be much. And Mercutio says, No, tis not as deep as a well, nor as wide as a church door, but shall do, tis enough. Ask for me tomorrow, and you will find me a grave man. Right? Wow, Shakespeare. What an adventure. So I went to Union College, and I saw after I got my... Uh, prerequisites out of the way, that I could take Shakespeare as a course. So I signed up for Shakespeare, and it was painful. (laughs) It was so boring. The professor was so smart. She knew so much about Shakespeare that we were studying all these obscure... I'll never forget this. Now, this is Shakespeare's up-and-down motif. Right? And I'm like, where's the sword fights? Where's the romance? Where's the treachery? You have sucked the life out of Shakespeare. All right, watch out, folks, as, as followers of Jesus. Yes, we are to study the Scriptures. We are to analyze them and do thorough exegesis. But to never forget... These words were written by young men tossing on their beds, rhymed out in love's despairing. These Gospels were, were written by men on the run who were proclaiming the kingdom of God in the face of a powerful earthly kingdom that wanted to silence them. And when they wrote statements and made statements that Christ is Lord or in the Latin, uh, Christus Kyrios, That was a defiant statement because Rome had already coined that expression, except it was Kaiser Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. 
And when these guys stood up in the public squares and proclaimed, No, Caesar is not Lord. Christus Kerios. That was an insurrection. And the strongest empire on earth came after them for that, to silence them. And they had ways to silence people who wouldn't shut up. They devised methods like crucifixion. And what did those young men tossing on their beds do? They made that very instrument the symbol of hope and victory. Right? You know what they were saying? Let's put it in our words. In your face, Rome. You can't scare us. We have seen the worst you got. And our Lord triumphs over that cross. So we do not fear the cross. We do not fear the cross. In fact, it's our symbol. And what we're saying is, Christ is Lord. You can do nothing to us. And they paid with their lives. Never forget this. I remember reading this and it struck me. Jesus' words roused his enemies to murder and his friends to martyrdom. No one was neutral about Jesus. It was never gray. It was stark, black and white. They were fighting words. We've got to be careful because when you become familiar with events, it can take us in two directions. They can become routine and stagnant. We can begin to edit and annotate the lines of, of these events of Holy Week. Or they can become ever more meaningful. Right? The longer we are with Christ, the more our hearts should burn hot. When we read about these true scenes and what our Savior did for us and what His followers chose to do with all the world against them and how they overcame the world because Christus Kyrios is real. This is my story at City Mission, right? It's, these, these stories do not become familiar even though you've seen hundreds of them. They are ever more wondrous. We had a graduation Thursday night, right? Two men graduated with those caps and gowns. And it is stunning that the grace of Jesus Christ never gets old. No matter how many times you see it, the one man, Andre, who graduated, we, we wrote a little story on him in the newsletter, and here's what he says. Someone once told me, God doesn't make junk. junk. Ever since I heard that, it struck with me. It stuck with me. For the first time in my life, I thought I could be somebody. I'm not a loser. I don't have to live my life like this. Since then, I've been growing and on a new journey. I have no excuse. God made us all different. And I know He has a plan for me. I tell people that if God can change me, He can change anyone. It never gets old. A man declares, I'm not a loser. I don't have to live like this. Christ has redeemed me. He has a plan for me. He has transformed me. Or the other graduate who told his story of literally coming from the jail across the street into our shelter. And as he received his diploma, his wife was there to present it to him. Restoration never gets routine. It never gets old. And the day if I can ever sit in a ceremony like that and treat it as normal, I need to go to my office, pack my boxes, and get out of there. Because this is not normal stuff. These are miracles. 
So in today's reading, we have a very familiar scene, but it is a scene of great action. It is Shakespearean, right? It is, it is action. It is passion. It is instruction and it is disruption, right? We know Jesus spends a lot of time in storms. He is regularly in stormy conditions and sometimes Jesus calms the storm. Right in Luke chapter 8, we read where he's in the boat with his disciples and a great storm hits the waters. And he says he rebukes the wind and the raging waters. And his disciples ask, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. He calms the storm when he encounters demon-possessed men and women and he, he casts the demons out of their lives. Again, in Luke chapter 8, in the region of the Gerasenes, the demoniac who was wreaking havoc in that town, he was a terrorist in that town, and how Jesus cast out those demons, and Luke writes that he was put back into his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. When John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, picture the storm around that as people are gathering around her and pointing fingers and accusing and picking up stones and saying the law says that she must be stoned, right? Jesus' great words, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he approaches the woman whose life is nothing but a storm and he says, woman, has no one condemned you? She replies, no one, sir. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. Right? He quiets the storms. He calms the storms. But then sometimes Jesus creates storms. He heals on the Sabbath knowing that's going to create a storm here. Right? He reaches out and he affirms the tax collector and the prostitute and the Roman centurion. And a false calmness is turned into a storm. On Palm Sunday, he is indeed creating a storm. He is coming into Jerusalem and it's time of the Passover. And this is when this town gets overcrowded, right? Jerusalem at Passover is New Orleans and Mardi Gras. There's more people than you should have in that limited space. But he picks the most tumultuous time, the most tension-packed time, and he rides into town, and it is a storm. And why is he doing it? He's doing it because he needs to establish right praise again. Listen to the words again of Matthew. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. And the crowds went ahead of him. And those followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's It's a storm of right praise. And in Luke's version, it says the Pharisees were angry and they said to Jesus, Teacher! Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replies, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then we go on that after that triumphant entry, he then he clears the temple. And that is a major storm. But don't forget what he's doing here. You see, the marketplace that had been set up had been set up in the court of the Gentiles. When God structured the original temple, the Jews were the chosen people. And they had the inner areas of the temple. They had the Holy of Holies and the sacred areas. But even though they were the chosen people, God was sending a prophetic message that someday the Gentiles would be included in this salvation. And so there was an 
outer court called the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not cross beyond that. But what the Jews of that day had done is they had filled the court of the Gentiles as a marketplace. Now, be assured, they were keeping holy the holy of holies. And I'm sure they justified it by saying, yeah, but we're really preserving the most special places. After all, what does it matter if the Gentiles don't come? And that's why Jesus is turning tables, because he is declaring a salvation for all people. First for the Jews, but for all. And that is a storm, and only a turning of the tables could, could help us grasp how stormy those words were. So when we read this stuff, what, we, hopefully we're, we're then translating it to saying, okay, what does this mean for me personally? What am I supposed to do with this? I hope we're asking that every day this Holy Week. What am I supposed to do with this? Right? It's a great story, but it's more than that. It is instruction for, for daily living. And the first thing that I think we need to wrestle with and incorporate is he comes on a donkey. Right? What is that all about? That is about humility. Because conquering kings did not ride donkeys. They rode big, beautiful horses. But this king is different, according to Zechariah. He is gentle. He is humble. He comes in as a king, every bit the king. But he's coming on a donkey. And so us, as we are called to engage the culture, we should be the most humble people in the culture. Now, there's a caveat here, because as the culture drifts farther and farther away from the things that we believe are right, it's very easy to get arrogant spiritually and say, can you believe those people? Right? And we are called to go to those places and engage them, but we should go literally on our knees in a spirit of humility, because we above all understand that we have been forgiven. If any group of people should not have an ounce of spiritual pride, it has to be followers of Jesus every time they look at the cross and say, the only reason why I have this faith, the only reason why I have this new life is because of the atoning work of Christ. It is all mercy. It is all grace. It is all love. How can I possibly have pride? So we want to enter the culture, but we want to enter on donkeys. And I will tell you that humility will win the day. Now, there is a place for good, robust arguments, right? That's good, too. And so we can engage in apologetics, but humility will win the day. Boy, 30 years at City Mission have taught me that. We had a situation recently where the police brought a man in late on a Friday night, and he was, had dementia. He had gotten out of his house, and he was wandering the streets, and they just saw him. They didn't know what to do, so they brought him to the mission. And so we took him in, and the next morning he was sitting in our community room, still with, with dementia, and he, he defecated all over himself. That's not a good thing to happen in a homeless shelter community room. And it caused a stir, as you can imagine. And one of our graduates, who's on staff now, named Anthony, walked in at that time, and he picked the man up. He brought him to the shower, and he showered him. He washed him. And he took him and he brought him into the clothing room. And he picked out a new outfit for him. And he, he changed his clothes. And at that very moment, as he was bringing him back out, the police came with the family. And what they encountered was their, their father was well. He had been cared for. 
And as the police officer was leaving, he turned back and he said, you know, I didn't know there were people like that at City Mission. See, what's he saying? See, police officers have hard jobs. They, they see the dark side of the mission. And there is a dark side. They see the messy side because they only come when something goes wrong. And it struck me that here's what I thought about. I said, for 30 years of my life, I have dedicated myself to building a brand for that ministry. Speaking and writing and public relations and doing interviews and holding banquets and all those things are good. But in the eyes of this police officer, one thing convicted him, and that was the humble service of a man who took care of a broken down old man who couldn't take care of himself. And that caused that police officer to say, I didn't know. I didn't know there were people like that at the mission. Interesting, I had um, breakfast this morning with a pastor, and he told me a story. He goes, Mike, I got this couple that comes to my church, and, and the husband, he's reluctant to come to church. He, he often doesn't want to come, but I guess a few weeks ago, his father was wandering the streets of Schenectady, and the police brought him to the mission. And he couldn't believe how he was cared for. And now he's more committed to coming to church. Thank God that on that morning, Anthony chose to ride a donkey to work. Let us never forget for all the apologetics, and they certainly have their place, and all the nice things we'll do, and it has its place. Humble service will win the day. So yes, we are called to go forth in the culture, but to do so, and we do it with passion and energy and vision, but riding on donkeys. And then let's come back to this concept of the court of the Gentiles. We want to make sure that our expression of our faith is not blocking others from entering. We want to make sure we're not falling into the trap, saying, boy, I'm glad we're not like them. Right? And without even realizing it, we're even although we have welcome signs everywhere, we have put a wall up. It basically says you don't belong here. Right? Again, the mission has taught me this, that in nearly every occasion when I'm frustrated about how people are acting, the people we serve, and nearly every occasion what God reveals first is what we're doing wrong, what we need to do better. I remember a couple of years ago, and Dan could tell you better than I, we were just having a lot of disruptions at our community meals. And it was hard. I mean, thank God we have men like Dan and people like Dan and Jordan and volunteers who serve, but it was hard. And so we were wrestling, my gosh, did we bring in security? Did we cancel the meal? We said, we can't do that. And I brought in one of our graduates and said, hey, what's going on here? And to my amazement, he listed three things that we could do better. Right? I didn't want to hear that. I wonder, how do we get the people to act better? He said, Mike, you're, you're sending the wrong message. And I won't tell you all that we did, but we changed our whole dining program. We created what was called Home Run Dining Services. We said it had four bases to it. Meal sharing, nutrition, choice, and beauty. And I will tell you that a peace has arrived. Look, it's never going to be peaceful. Okay? It's never going to be that. It's not the work we do. But it changed the place. So even as we're seeking 
even as we're inviting people in, we want to make sure that we haven't blocked the court of the Gentiles and that we're keeping people from entering not so much by what we say, but by what we do. And the first thing we got to ask in this Holy Week, Father, Lord, Savior, what do you want of us? Show me, Father, what I need to do, first and foremost, before I expect other people to be different. These are days of tremendous opportunity, days of open doors. We have public high schools coming to the mission almost every day. Friday we had one high school came and they brought their at-risk students. And I was able to say to the principal, bring us your students. There's a whole lot of places that can give them service projects. But City Mission, we can give them hope. Right? And one of our graduates gave his testimony to these students. And I'm telling you, they did not budge. Those eyes were riveted to him because they watched a man be humble in front of them. And talk about his wounds and his hurts. But also talk about healing and hope. Oh, these are great days. So today, as we begin Holy Week, a series of events that change the world... 2,000 years later, these events are still changing the world. The storm still rages. Friends, let us not fear the storm, but let it change us so we can enter the storm and be part of the great adventure of being disciples of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. For truly, Christus Curious forever. Lord, we thank you for the stunning truths that are the gospel. We thank you that men and women loved you enough to sacrifice all so that these stories might come to us. And we thank you for 2,000 years worth of saints that have sought the kingdom of God that it might be preserved. Lord, in this holy week, Let us not live off their actions, but let us step up and receive the baton and run the race you're calling us to with courage, with faith, in humility, in love, in hope, for truly Christ Jesus is Lord. Amen.